0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. It's a butter egg made from plants. Bring more customers in your doors with Just Egg. Start with a free sample at ju.st hrn.
2: This week on Meet and 3, we rethink surplus by exploring
1: how innovators are promoting sharing mindsets and responding to excess in
3: creative ways. The whole life cycle of food would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter behind China and the United States if it were a country.
0: You know, in the age of COVID, where a lot of those institutional processors did grind to a halt and a lot of farms had to dump milk in Pennsylvania, even while supermarket cases were, were bare, the organic market stayed strong.
2: They source all of these ingredients, they do all of this work, and then they just boil it for a few minutes and then they throw it away.
1: Tune in to Meetin 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 165 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And today we have a kind of, I think, special episode. I mean, all of our episodes are are great and I really like them all for different reasons, but this is a milestone. We are officially at the one-year mark of producing Tech Bytes remotely because of the global pandemic. And I thought it would be a nice moment to bring back um, some guests from the course of the past year and talk about how the year has gone for them and what they are looking forward to. We did episode 200 of Tech Bytes back on March 17th, 2020. It was the first one we did remotely because New York City had just gone into a lockdown. We recorded remotely via Zencaster, which was the first time we were using all of that new technology. Um, And I think that preemptively, the Heritage Radio Network staff had started moving into that remote recording actually uh, a week or two before. And from my end, as a host and a producer, it really came off seamlessly. Um, But I want to ask... Matt Patterson, who is here with us as the engineer, you don't often hear him, but he is always here making sure things run smoothly and the show gets produced and published. Matt, how has the past year been for you from the tech HRN side?
3: Uh, It's been pretty good, all things considered. I mean, yeah, you experienced that change as being quite smooth and I'm glad for that. And it, it kind of was because we had already used a lot of these technologies in producing meet and three, um, which is like, you know, our kind of the weekly
1: news flagship show, weekly mm-hmm. news
3: show. Yeah. Which had a lot more remote recordings, uh, before anybody else did. Um, and yeah, so we sort of knew the technology, although I think I personally had like barely used, you know, Zencastr or any of these. And we've experimented with a few of them over time and learned what works and what doesn't. But uh, yeah, it was a pretty quick change. And then, you know, working remotely has its ups and downs, but uh, there were some some good things organizationally. Like, we, you know, we use, use Slack um, now, and it's like actually quite helpful for our team, I think, um, for internal communications and keeping things more organized, um, onboarding people a little more quickly and that's, it's gone pretty smooth actually. <laughs> it's, looking it's,
1: back, so looking back, it was okay. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And now it's funny. I mean, we're at the point where we're starting to ask questions about like, Hey, wait, when are we going back to the studio? And what will that Are we going like?
1: back to the studio?
3: I mean, eventually, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, But then, yeah, there is also the question of like, you know, what do what do hosts want? And certainly for the next, I expect this will be in a big transitional period for at least the rest of this year, but I could totally see a point where there's a blend. So I don't know. Well, the, the things, you know, it's like things, things feel a little more uncertain again, whereas they were, they were very uncertain at the beginning. Then they sort of smoothed out. We're like, all right, we know what we're doing. <laughs> uh, we expect this to last a long time. And now they're starting to, to edge back towards uncertainty where we don't know what the future will look like.
1: That's an interesting uh, observation. And I think you're absolutely right. There definitely is a feeling right now of what's happening next in a, in a substantial way. What would you say the the biggest surprise was for you over the course of the past year? Um, perhaps a pandemic positive, as a few people on this show have, have talked about, or, you know, just, I mean, the whole thing is wildly unexpected, but is, is there something that stands out to you?
3: I mean, keeping it generally within this realm of conversation, I would say the thing that surprises me or has surprised me most is that a number of hosts have actually seemed quite positive on recording remotely in a way that I I would have expected there to be just like more tech hesitancy and whatnot. But I do think a lot a number of people really took took advantage of that and just decided like, okay, well, if I can remote <laughs> if I can interview people anywhere, I'm gonna I'm gonna interview people who I normally wouldn't who are further away. I'll organize episodes around things that are a little more, geographically dispersed and and just like view that all as a as a positive and um and so yeah i i'm going to be very interested to see you know like what all the hosts of shows really want uh, as they as we you know come into this next period of all this but um
1: what's the thing that know. you miss the most about the studio
3: I think I get fired if I don't say Roberto's pizza. Um, which is probably actually that's just not true.
1: You you could say you could say missing seeing the hosts live I and in person. Missing
3: seeing the hosts. You could say
1: that. I think that could easily supersede Roberto's pizza. <laughs>
3: that's that is uh, that is true. Um I I would have said normal social interaction, but I've actually forgotten what that's like, so I didn't think to say it. Um <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I miss the people. I miss, I miss the, the food and I miss the, like, I mean, man, it was, it was just a lot, it was a lot smoother sailing. I would say there was, there was an ease of like, you know, you come in, you have quick, you have, you have normal conversations with people, plan things, do it, move on. (laughs) It was, it was a lot less juggling.
1: Yeah. Well, I, for one, uh, really, want to take a moment to applaud all the work that you have done along with the rest of the crew at Heritage Radio, because it's been a great transition on the host and producer side. And I mean, we'll hear from our guests today, but I have to say on a personal note, sitting down once a week to do this show with you over the course of the past year, talking with so many people who in light of something that was like truly uh, disaster, you know, really managed to find ways to, you know, pivot and innovate and and put some good things into the world. So it was a really, the over the course of the past year, the show's been, um, you know, sort of a great uh, mile marker on my calendar. Have show to do every week, which is really helpful, and also just the opportunity, as you said earlier, to talk to people from around the world and really kind of find those stories of you know, perseverance and resilience and and moving forward was, um, you know, helpful and gratifying to me and hopefully, you know, helpful to people who were listening as well. So um, I say hats off to you, Matt. And it's nice to hear you every now and again. <laughs>
3: well, Thank, thank you.
1: <laughs> so we have with us two guests today um, who faithful listeners will really recognize. First, we have T Sharma, who actually was on episode 200 a year ago um, and did the first remote recording with us. She is the founder and CEO of two companies. One is called Food to Eat. The other is called Bicky. And she also really took the time this year uh, to dig into her activism and ran for city council in District 24 in Queens. Um, Deep T, thank you for joining us. Um, I want to tell you that an anecdote that I share over and over again on this show and in real life um, is when we were doing the episode, you said, "It's so great to be here. It's just like coming home." And it that that has just stuck with me so much over the course of this past year because you were at home when you said that, but your actual home. But there was something, I think, intangible about the collection of people talking about a specific subject in a specific way that resonated with you in a visceral way that was sort of that intangible thing. And it's, it's that intangible thing that I think we've been looking for so hard this year. And also that intangible thing is the thing that you know, restaurants and hospitality businesses and theater and museums have been trying to figure out what the alchemy of that is to sort of try and bring that to their customers and their clients and their audience in a in a virtual way. So I want to thank you for coming back. We're going to be excited to hear about, you know, all the things that you've done and, and how your businesses are going. But do you
4: remember saying that? And do you remember um, what had come to mind when you did? I, you know, it's funny. I don't remember saying that, but I can see myself saying that. I think it was just more the comfort of being around you and the, the, the people that, you know, I love listening to your show because you're very thoughtful when you ask questions, the amount of research you do. And I think home is just like hearing your voice sometimes, right. And just feeling comfortable when you're asking me these questions and, and asking about what's going on in my life. And so I don't know what I was thinking <laughs> per se, but I think it's just the comfort of knowing that like, you're someone that I respect in the industry. And, you know, it's really rare to find people that like ask the questions that aren't often asked. So I'd say that's probably what I was thinking. And, um, it's rare to have that level of comfort with people that are interviewing you.
1: Oh, well, I will hundred percent take that. And thank you. Um, and I do try and put a lot of thought into things. And I do try and ask people uh, questions that maybe no one's asked them before, um, because I think and hope that that's why people come to this show to to hear, you know, really a different point of view mm-hmm. um, about maybe a story or an idea that they already know, but maybe they get to experience it in a, in a little bit of a different way. Um, you're always such a great guest to have on because... Your businesses are about the restaurant business. Your clients and colleagues are restaurants. So for people who may be um, meeting Deepti for the first time here, her business, Food to Eat, is uh, essentially corporate catering, where she has a stable of restaurants, many of them uh, women and um, minority-owned, and then she has businesses- that are the clients who are looking to book corporate events. You know, back back in the before times when there were breakfast meetings in a conference room, yeah. or lunch meetings, or you know, an after work presentation that required snacks. Uh, food to eat would be the organizational arm of that for the corporate client, and then pull through, you know, this offering of local restaurants. Um, her company, Bicky, is CRM for restaurants, so that's the tech and data side of restaurants, also. So, how her business is doing is a really great indicator of how the business is doing. So, tell us, you know, how um, how Food to Eat and and Bicky have gone over the past year.
4: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's so interesting because they're both very different businesses, and and it's very reflective of what's happening in you know, in our world right now. So food to eat last year, essentially, literally went to zero revenue, because nobody was doing and hosting events. And even now, as like events are slowly coming back, people are are still not like running towards having in person events, I think they're taking it one day at a time and, and slowly hosting things. So when it comes to corporate catering, we have some things happening, but it's really, really minimal. But In the last year, we essentially pivoted into um, food insecurity work. You know, we saw that the industry was essentially failing and needed help. We saw people in the industry lost their jobs that were, you know, driving them to go food insecure. And so we started fundraising and applying for grants. Um, We've fed over 150,000 meals in the last year through um, crowdfunding grants and partnerships with organizations like Rural Central Kitchen and... That has been like the majority of the work that we've been focusing on is just making sure that we buy meals from local restaurants that are um, still open, that are immigrant, woman, minority, you know, black and brown owned. And then giving those meals out to community members that, you know, need the help working with pantries, working with, you know, um, we worked with the domestic violence shelter last year. Um, So we've just been kind of focusing on community work and making sure that we can help restaurants through this really tough time um, while doing, again, like little bits and pieces of corporate catering work. But again, like I said, there hasn't been much going on. And whatever we have been doing has been like very COVID, um, you know, quote unquote, friendly, just making sure everything is individually wrapped and packed so that people are comfortable when they're getting their meal. It's not the traditional catered meal where you're kind of putting a plate together for yourself. So it's interesting to see how that's changed um, in the corporate catering setting. Um, and our second company, Bicky has soared. It's gone in the other direction, interestingly enough, because because the industry has changed. People are now realizing in the restaurant industry how important their digital footprint is and how important keeping relationships with their customers is because the only way they can really have real relationships right now um, on a large scale, is digitally, and so at Bicky, you know, we have we essentially are a CRM for restaurants. We aggregate data from their third party services and help them understand that data so that they can build stronger relationships with their customers. And instead of just giving out discounts, like that's the one thing that's really bothered me about the restaurant industry when it comes to marketing is let's just give out a free cup of coffee or free this and lure people to come in or discounts, right? Everyone has gone through this Groupon model. And we forget that the reason why a restaurant, like a patron comes to a restaurant is because I enjoy the food. I enjoy the the friendly banter that I have when I'm getting my cup of you know coffee or juice or whatever the, that may be. And you can build that loyalty digitally as well. Obviously, it's not going to be the same, but you can build that loyalty through your brand, through your story. And that's what we're really helping people do through Bicky, And so- it's interesting while food to eat took this bit of a hit because we're very service in, you know, driven Bicky, on the other hand has grown, you know, we've raised around, we're actually going through that right now. Um, and you know, I started the business with my husband and he's the CEO of that business, but you know, I, um, have now taken an advisory role, but it's just interesting to see how, because the world changed so quickly our business has changed and Bicky is, you know, kind of going through this interesting time where people, uh, realizing how important it is for them to have these relationships um, now digitally.
1: Certainly, a digital life has become critical. You know, I think maybe a year ago before the pandemic, we've had many conversations on this show with different people about different, you know, digital platforms and social media. And, you know, there was a little bit of a question, about what type of digital footprint your restaurant or business had to have online. Should you have social media? Should you be on Instagram? Do you need to do delivery? All those types of things. And today, all of those questions have been answered with a resounding, yes, absolutely, a thousand percent, you need every single one of those things if you're going to survive. Um, It's also an interesting juxtaposition um, that you are raising uh, around and doing some financing because... You know, this pandemic has also been really an interesting story, um, an unfortunate story, perhaps, and a a sobering story of there's a lot of people who are making a lot of money and there's a lot of money out there. There's money for investing in innovations and startups and the stock market and all of those things, um, while there are tremendous numbers of people who are really struggling on a survival level um, and the discrepancy that we're seeing Is not getting better as of yet, and it's almost you know the chasm is almost widening. Um, I think that that is probably something that our second guest, Eliza Lower, who is the executive director of the Food Education Fund, which is Food and Finance High School in New York City, Um, it is a public high school that kids go to when they want to be in the restaurant business. And we've been a long, long time fan of the food and finance high school here at Tech Bytes and at Heritage Radio Network. We've done radio scholarship programs and had the students on and participated in in lots of different programs at the school. Um, It's a really great place and one of the only high schools of its kind, and certainly the only high school of its kind in New York City. Um, And it is a public school, though, and it is preparing kids to go into an industry right now that's being decimated. Um, But they're really positive about it. And actually, interestingly, um, Eliza, uh, maybe you can tell us about the first pivot that you all made at the very beginning also, which was, much like Deepthi, pivoting into um, food security and helping to feed your students and your families and kind of creating that network really, really
4: very
2: early on. Yeah. Hello. Um, and thank you for having me on. Yeah. So this day of kind of the March 16th, March 15th has been something I've I've been watching on the calendar just because I I think anniversaries in this world are so, um, kind of telling. And I think we're all sitting back thinking of, of where we were a year ago. Um, and it's, so we actually, as, as Food Education Fund is the nonprofit that supports food and finance and actually now two other schools, High School of Hospitality Management and Brooklyn STEAM, we had our big fundraiser on March 9th of last year, which was kind of the day before the world shut down. So so last week, last year, we had a, our big fundraiser. And then later that week, we were doing a big, we were already doing a big food distribution because we... Um, it was very likely that schools were about to be shut down. And so many of our students, 85% of whom live below the poverty line and, and the other 15%, many very close to that. Um, A lot of them get their only meal of the day at school. Um, So we actually did a big food distribution on March 13th of kind of giving things out as quickly as we could before kids went home. And then when March 15th hit, That was the same day that schools announced that they were shutting down. It was like a Sunday evening and also that restaurants had to close. Um, So our original thought was like, okay, there's all these restaurants that will have extra food that's going to go bad and there's all these families that need that food. Um, So we set up a food hub website and also a food map where restaurants could list the food that they had available and when it was available to pick up which we had, I think, like 20,000 views of that, but we honestly really don't know how well it worked. And um, something that kind of slapped us in the face was just, I think, kind of the the base of equity, as in a lot of the restaurants we work with are in Manhattan or kind of downtown Brooklyn, and a lot of the families we work with are an hour and a half to two hours away. And I think that that whole kind of situation encapsulates so much of what goes wrong, honestly, with a lot of um, nonprofits and programs is there's this thing that feels like it so, makes so much sense. But if you're not really thinking about where people are and meeting them where they're at, it doesn't do the, the good that you're hoping for
1: and that's actually like of actual physical geographical meeting them
2: where right. they're at <laughs> not an intellectual
1: conceptual idea but actually you are in a different borough from the restaurant that has the food how do we resolve that
2: i think kind of both too cuz they they in theory could have come to manhattan but there are also families that are you know dealing with schools closing down and fear and parents that might still be working Um, So the the next step that we did was to um, create, we wanted to create a food distribution where families had choices. And also there was last mile delivery, which I have learned are very hard things to do in terms of food distribution. Um, But we were fortunate to have one of our board members, Questlove, was raising funds for that. Um, So we went to one of our partners, Ace Indico, and they set up this, this account for the families where the families had $200 to like choose what they wanted from this portal. Um, And then there were all these other donations on top of that, that got delivered to the houses, which was kind of the, the ideal structure and also almost broke us just because the logistics of that. And it was for, we have 800 students, there's about 800 families as a part of that, And we were a team of three people then. Um, So that was, I am so glad that we did it. We were able to get, it was like three weeks of food per family. And also it was just so complicated and challenging um, to figure that out. So we've we've gone through a few different models. We are now on a a pickup model in a few different places because things have opened back up and families are um, able to pick up. Um but we we honestly thought we would be doing food distribution, which I would imagine deep deep in a similar spot of, of for you know maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months until someone else stepped in or you know maybe that's the government, maybe that's another organization. but it has been amazing to see how many nonprofits that did not originally do food distribution are continuing to do food distribution today. and I think honestly disheartening because I think that that speaks to the huge need still and the lack of structures that we have as a society to feed people when, when something goes wrong. Um, so that's, we, we're, we're not sure. We'll probably do it at least until June. Um, but we're also looking at some other programs of, of how we, it was another thing that we did in the beginning was alumni emergency grants. And we had an application that I'm like touching my heart right now, just because it, it always uh, feels so intense to think about this of, we usually have about 16 alums apply for a scholarship. We had about 90 applications in the first wow. 24 hours. Wow. And I think 80% of them, we we asked them about immediacy of need of just self-reporting just because we had a certain amount of funds and wanted to prioritize who really needed it. But it was about 80% of people that were either zero to three months or immediate need. And looking at the names, a lot of these were like valedictorians got full ride scholarships to CIA or Johnson and Wales. And it just showed so clearly how the culinary industry, as it was structured, did not set people up to have a safety net and also how big of a disparity and racial disparity there is between hourly employees and salaried employees. Um, It was just heartbreaking.
1: I I don't think that the industry has actually changed. I think it probably still is (laughs) like that. Um, But, you know, an awareness is certainly there. Um, And I I, I don't know that people know how to make that change or fix it quite yet. One of the things I think that is resonant about the one-year anniversary is I don't think anybody thought we would have a one-year anniversary. I think initially when, you know, everyone got sent home and, you know, we're in, in in lockdown for a while and as things progressed, I think everybody thought like the the resolution of this was just around the corner. It'll be a few weeks. It'll be a few months, you know, by the spring, by the summer, by the fall, by the turn of the year. And I think... It's amazing to say we're at a one year anniversary of this pandemic, because I don't think anybody really, truly anticipated that. And also not really knowing what the next anniversary is. I think Matt's earlier comment of, you know, it was so surprising and you didn't know what to do. And then everybody figured out how to or, you know, found some sort of way to navigate the new situation. And now we're at a precipice of what's going to happen next. Um, it's really hard to maintain a level of like energy and work and enthusiasm for an unknown period of time. I mean, you know, you can run a marathon, you know, it's 26 miles, right? People do it all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's from what I understand, extremely challenging. I would know, ne- I, I don't think I could do it, but, you know, people do it and they pace themselves because they know it's 26 miles, but we have no idea like how long this marathon is. So it's hard to pace yourself and your resources and the enthusiasm, you know, of people to participate and, you know, to help support things. So it's, it's really challenging. Um, we are going to take a quick break and find out who is supporting us in this show. Um, Over the past year, we have had a number of really fantastic sponsors. We, too, have had grants, and we've had a lot of support from our members who are listeners like you. Uh, Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. We keep the lights on and the mics hot out of generosity of all of you and companies like this one. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. Just Egg is now the fastest growing egg brand in the United States. Bring more plant-based customers into your doors with easy-to-use Just Egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet it's healthier, with no cholesterol, and less saturated fat. And it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st hrn. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble, great for omelets, frittatas, stir fries, and French toast. There's also frozen pre-baked folded version that's ideal for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andres called Just Egg mind-blowing and Bon Appetit says, so good I feel guilty eating it. Put the fastest growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st hrn. We are talking about the one-year anniversary of the global pandemic, almost a year to the day of the first remotely recorded episode of Tech Bites. We are talking with T Sharma, founder and CEO of food to eat founder of Biki, and recently ran for city council in District 24 in Queens. If you want to follow her online and learn more about her and her businesses, foodtoeat.com, at food to eat on social media. Bicky is B-I-K-K-Y.com, Bicky H Q on social media. And if you want to follow Deep T, she is Deep T N Y C, D-E-E-P-T-I-N-Y-C. Um, Eliza Lower is joining us. She is with the Food Education Fund that supports Food and Finance High School and now two other schools. Um, if you want to Find them on social media at Food Education Fund. They are online, foodeducationfund.org. The students also miraculously, and we'll talk about that, we'll talk about this next, produced a magazine <laughs> during lockdown remotely called Pass the Spatula, the junior class uh, last year. Uh, it's a great, great actual print magazine. You can follow them on social media at Pass the Spatula. Um, And look back in the Tech Bytes archives, because we have lots of episodes with both of these women talking about these organizations. Something that um, both of you very much, you know, have in common in your organizations is being um, really responsive to what's happening, you know, I I would say like on the ground in an actual, this is what's happening in my community, this is what's happening with my people. Um, you're both acutely aware of what is happening in the restaurant industry, really being, you know, just decimated by what's happening because of the lack of, of social safety net support, because of, you know, us being required to be physically distant. I, I would love to hear from both of you, you know, having come through the year, I'm going to say successfully, maybe in a different way, but really having been proactive and, and really worked hard to um, kind of like cross the one year line. What do each of you see um, in the short term with the restaurant industry and how that's going to impact your, you know, colleagues, students, constituents and, and businesses? Deepthi, what do you what are you seeing for the next, you know, three to six months?
4: Um, honestly, it's it's hard to tell. I think that, you know, I talk to restaurants and a lot of them are trying to be hopeful right now just because the weather is getting better. People are getting vaccinated they're being deemed as essential when it comes to vaccines now, like they can actually go and get a vaccine and are being prioritized. So restaurants are hopeful, but at the same time, you can tell that it's like, it's not hopeful to the 100%, right? It's it's just, it's there's they're trying to be hopeful because they want to just be optimistic given the year that they've been through. But there's still a part of them that feels like, what if like, you know, the rug just gets pulled underneath from underneath us and like, what happens? What do we do? So, you know, right now the restaurants, they're just trying to prepare for a summer in which, you know, things will be a little bit more open. They can continue doing outdoor dining. Um, People will be responsibly and safely dining with them. and, And that's their hope. Um, but the relief is really important and how they get access to this relief and what that means. And, you know, I'm still getting calls trying to like, I, what I'm trying to do is now read the plan, try to understand what that plan means for each restaurant and who can actually apply for these grants through this, you know, the American rescue plan that's been written and given out, uh, being given out slowly. So, um, Honestly, it's hard to tell, um, and I and I don't want to set anything out and put anything, <laughs> set anything in stone because, as we know, this past year has been so unpredictable, and I think that the same is going to be for this next six months because just because they have a good summer doesn't mean, you know, people are going to come back to work, especially for those restaurants that are in midtown Manhattan that literally depended on people working from their offices. Like, that was probably a majority of their revenue, 70% of their revenue probably came from catered meals, or, you know, those group orders that were coming in from the finance companies that they were servicing. Um, I always think about like the fast casual restaurants, like Dig In or Sweet Green, all of them have been affected as well. I mean, obviously, not as much as the mom and pops, but, you know, these restaurants opened in all of Manhattan, they had multiple locations, because they were you know, again, they were expecting a certain type of clientele to be coming there. So I will say, I think that, like, you know, um, given that people are still not going back to work, you know, we we haven't heard any of the large companies saying that they're going back to work. And and so that there is going to be that huge effect on these Manhattan-based restaurants that primarily you know, we're dependent on that traffic. Um, You know, with Broadway opening up, maybe there might be things changing because there will be more tourists coming in or more people coming in to watch shows and whatnot. But I think that they're you know, as as excited as people are for the summer, I'm still kind of scared considering there's a huge chunk of people that um, that were the you know everyday business for restaurants that aren't going to be there. So, you know, similar to what Eliza was talking about earlier, relief is going to have to continue, right? The fact that so many organizations like us that didn't do food insecurity work before are now doing it. You know, I'm talking to pantries in my neighborhood that I live in just to make sure that they have exactly what they need. Um, And I'm trying to deliver fresh fruits and vegetables to them every week. So as much as I can bring in hot meals, I try to bring in produce as well because canned goods aren't going to cut it, right? Um, And so for me, what's most important is just to continue doing this work, making sure that I'm providing the relief to the organizations that have been doing this for years because they still don't have what they need. And that's like the saddest thing to continue to see that we're a year in to this pandemic and we're still dealing with more of the same. Haven't quite figured out how to solve those problems while they're happening a year
1: in. Do you think that it's meaningful, Deep Tea, that um, in the recent relief package that the assistance monies are prioritized to go to women and minority-owned businesses first?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because we've seen this and I've heard these stories plenty um, through the interviews that I've done in this past 10 years of running Food to Eat is that access to capital is one of the biggest, you know, factors that doesn't allow women in black and brown businesses to actually just get started on their own initially. So the fact that they're doing that is really important. I mean, I've been getting texts in the past year from women-owned businesses that haven't been prioritized Um, with the PPP loans that that went out. And so I think it's a huge deal that they are doing that. And I'm glad that they're prioritizing women in minority-owned businesses because it's essential when it comes to capital.
1: Well, maybe just the outlines of what the relief package is indicates that people are being heard and government officials are starting to actually see and recognize what some of the critical issues are. Eliza, you are getting ready to reopen the school after a year.
2: Yes. So uh, the schools are going back on March 22nd, which apparently the new um, school's chancellor found out on the news, along with all of us. So that's
1: how it works here. We find things <laughs> out on the works. news and TV.
2: Twitter is how yeah, most exactly. principals mm-hmm. and people mm-hmm. find things out, which is TV. shocking. I saw it on TV. <laughs> Yeah. So you can imagine, um, without any prior warning, there has been a lot of kind of confusion and back and forth what that means. Um, Teachers are going back in on this Thursday. And then some students are going back in on early next week, but it's still just the students who have opted into remote, um, which depending on the school ranges between 5%, some have 30%, but most of the schools we work with are in the like 5 to 10% range. So it's still honestly very confusing because there are, there are students in school. One of our um, staff members, Kat Tavares, who's been on a prior episode runs a restaurant management um, course that is both in person and online. So back in the fall, Kat would have a class that started at 9am in person then would have to give them a break, hop on a virtual class that started at 9.30, new in-person class at 10, new virtual class at 10.30, and each of these are about hour-long classes. So it's just a lot of that for the whole year and and definitely sympathize with them. There was a time in the virtual world where where things felt like, okay, we can do this. Um, but it's, it, it is definitely hard to know that they're... You know, there is hope at some point for our restaurant. We are still funding part of our um, internships and restaurants, but they are still happening. I think we actually got pretty lucky in terms of timing. We had some interns work from about September through November when things started closing down again. And then our next interns are about to start. Um But yeah, it's opening, lots of uncertainty, lots of not sure what that means, especially since so many vaccines were happening in public high schools. I'm not sure how that all affects it all, but yeah, we will see. And
1: the students are, did you lose any students because they decided this was not the industry that they wanted to go into? Did you maintain everybody and they're still interested and hopeful and wanting to become a part of the restaurant industry as professionals. It's a really interesting time in a young person's yeah. life, just generally navigating all this, but navigating something of going into, you know, an industry that, you know, every day on the news, all we see is is doom and gloom that has to have some sort of impact on kids.
2: Yeah, I think... I think there are, um, that was actually kind of a silver lining of the pandemic of when in, I guess it was March 15th last year, when every single one of our interns was laid off on the same day, we had some time to kind of plan for the fall and figure out um, how we were going to do this in a pandemic world, which meant that we were able to open up the internship program to other um avenues of we have we had two interns at Cherry Bomb Magazine, we had some at Chef's Warehouse, we had some kind of just we at um, Ash Hospitality. So doing not just culinary internships, which even in the past, it was about 50% of the students were interested in straight culinary. And the other ones, you know, love Food Network shows, and they were 14 when they decided but they didn't actually want to go into a kitchen. So I think with with opening that up, plus projects like Pass the Spatula, which you mentioned, which the issue last spring was about highlighting uh, food pioneers of color. And then they're working on a Pass the Spatula 2.0 this year, which actually is about food insecurity, food sovereignty, and food justice, which I am really excited to see what students who have just been through a year of pandemic um, have to say on on all of those subjects. So I I think it's actually opened the students' mind up to the the entirety of the world of food. Um, And then the because we were able to fund some of the stipends of the students in restaurant internships, that actually allowed the restaurants to kind of have an extra body that they didn't need to pay for directly um, and allowed the students to still get some experience. So there were some upsides. It's definitely they are definitely scared to have spent so much time, especially the alums, training for an industry that they're not sure what it will look like. Um, But I think they've also had more conversations than ever about kind of what their place in that will look like, what role they can play in that, how they can help create more equity, more sustainability um, in whatever the future of that industry looks like.
1: Well, one of the reasons why I always like talking with you and the students and the other educators at Food and Finance High School and the Food Education Fund is that inexplicably, sometimes there is this just tremendous positivity and like love for the industry and moving forward. It's really, um, and, and it's very reliable. Every time you come on the show, you have something like that to say about And Then we made this thing and we did this and people helped us and donated and the kids were great and they went to work and, and we kept going and it's really, um, it's always, it's always good to hear and always something uh, we want to try and shine a light on. So I note the clock, and we're running close to being out of time. Um, I'll just ask each of you, you know, um, thoughts on the one-year anniversary, you know, either personally or professionally, and um, what's the thing you're most looking forward to? Deep tea.
4: Um, (laughs) I think I'm looking forward to more and more people being vaccinated and um, being able to finally feel a little safe again. Um, when, you know, like I haven't really interacted with much of my family other than the immediate family members, um, and even friends. And I think that that is something I'm looking forward to is just in-person interaction, um, in the most responsible way possible, obviously, But I miss people like I you know, yes, we've been able to do things more efficiently by doing things remotely in our homes and people are more productive or whatever. But I like wasting time sometimes when it comes to just grabbing a drink with somebody or just like talking things through um, and having in-person events and like, you know, seeing people's body language, because that has a huge effect on me as a person. And I've so dearly missed it. And um, so I'm definitely looking forward to more and more people being vaccinated and having those responsible and safe um, interactions with people. Because I do, I do miss seeing you, right? I miss like watching you do your thing and, you know, like just like watching everybody do their thing in there and be in their element. As much as I miss Roberta's, I miss, just like doing podcasts in person as well and, and things like that, not having to figure out how to do the recording on my end, just having the technicians and the people that are experts do their job. So <laughs> it's, it would know. also be nice to see
1: people's faces. Yeah. Because when you get to see people, that's great. But I'm remarking more and more of just how, how strange that is. You really lose so much of a person's expressiveness when you can't see 75% of their face. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Deepthi, do do, do you think that your business Food to Eat will continue in a service sort of nonprofit venue, even when the corporate side comes back online?
4: Yeah, I mean, we're still figuring out what to do, right? We were for profit and then pivoted into this nonprofit type of work. Um, I think I'm just still trying to navigate what comes next but in the meantime as long as we're con- you know able to get these grants and we're able to continue doing the the food insecurity work because I don't see a huge amount of relief coming on the government side we'll keep doing it um in the meantime and we're trying to work with um elected officials to see what kinds of policies need to be in place so that you know when and if something like this happens again that we're not in this huge shitty place right like where we're there's like hundreds of organizations like us um like eliza like that are trying to figure this out because that's not how it should be right systems should be in place where people um, that need the help get the help when they need it not 10 months later not a year later and so that's something that I'll be concentrating my time on is just working with legislators and elected officials to figure out what can be done so that in the future that this isn't the place that we're in and that we're not depending on you know, hundreds of us starting our own GoFundMe pages because that's not what GoFundMe started for, right? Like ten years ago, GoFundMe was for you to start your own project, but not to solve food insecurity and and save
1: save industries and businesses and yeah people exactly. And not so that, that I, we don't want to do that collectively or have a society where we want to help each other, but on a, on a structural institutional, you know, fundamental
4: level, that's, that's not. Exactly. People's jobs. (laughs) Exactly. That's, and that's my point, right? Like, obviously I will keep doing this because when I see a need, when I see someone hurting, like I will go out and do, do the work, right? I, I was out in the heat of the pandemic last year, like delivering food. And I, I've been doing that for the past year, and I'm grateful that I had the ability to even do that, right? My husband was watching our kids while I was going out doing that kind of work. But again, it's, it shouldn't fall on my shoulders only. Like there has to be more. So, and that's what I want to work on, on, like more of a long-term, um, you know, process as opposed to what's the short term that we can all do ourselves. Because we'll all roll up our sleeves and do it. But what else can we do so that in the long term, these aren't the things that are happening?
1: Eliza, what, what, what are your thoughts for the coming time and what are you most looking forward to?
2: Yeah. I've just been kind of nodding my head the whole time of (laughs) all of that. Um, I think I'm kind of thinking on kind of the immediate term, the short and the long and the immediate, I just, I kind of go back to what you are saying, Jen, about like a marathon of, I I think we really need to do a better job of recognizing that we've all been this, been in this for a year. Um, obviously at at different levels of stress and trauma and anxiety, but we've all been in in this for a year and we are kind of going on turbo jets. And especially with the, the virtual meeting world of it, it used to be of, you know, if you had to go to a meeting, that was three or four hours of your day, you know, going there during the meeting, talking after, and now it's, you know, eight or nine a day, just back to back to back. And I think there's just a lot of that. It's, it's, I think draining and I think we're all tired and I think we, and I'm also talking to myself <laughs> of just need to do a better job of, of creating space for each other, having grace for each other. Um, on kind of the medium term of, of definitely also echo what Deep Deepthi was saying of, I, I hope that we can take this opportunity because I do think it's an opportunity of, I don't think the restaurant industry will ever have a chance to have a reset like this to create a more sustainable and equitable industry. Um we on our end are are trying two different things but they're small scale. One of them is creating an accelerator for our alumni to start businesses that are um, community business is not kind of the next unicorn, and another one is is kind of totally out of the realm of is working with actually Shake Shack to train their um, shift managers to hopefully be able to be promoted to exempt managers, and also working with Shake Shack to identify some of the reasons that they haven't been promoted, whether that is structural racism or um, gender discrimination or anything like that. Um, and today somebody just got promoted, which is super exciting. But so I think. There are, that's the type of thing we never would have done before the pandemic because it's so outside of the box. But I do think we all need to be thinking in that way of, we we probably have about six months left before the restaurant industry is back. And I think now is the time to really be thinking about who gets to own restaurants. How do we make these structures more sustainable financially, more sustainable emotionally, and more equitable? Um, and then in terms of looking forward to it, definitely seeing our students because as you were saying, Jen, of, of the like, I think the, the positivity just comes from like looking at 16 year old faces that have, you know, hope and positivity <laughs> and, and wanting to give them something to be excited about.
1: Can you live stream um, that for us? <laughs> yes.
2: We just we had a call yesterday about Pass the Spatula 2.0 and they're just so excited and that that I think gives me energy.
1: Well, both of you have have made some really, um, really great points that I think are universal. You know, I think uh, it's good to look back and and assess. Um, If you don't assess things, you know, you can't make changes going forward or keep doing the thing that works. The other thing is that because we just don't know, it is important to take those breaks and, you know, whatever that, like the physical break, the mental break, the sleep break, the people break, the Zoom break, all of those things. And it is a a, a time where it's almost like anything goes. And I don't mean that in a a, a sort of like violent uh, anarchy kind of way, like, you know, just go out and burn the house down kind of thing. Um, I don't mean that. But I do mean that everybody understands what a cataclysmic time this has been. And no one will question a business's shift or pivot or change in the way they want to work going forward. Because everyone will get it, and you don't have to explain it. You won't have to sell it to the customer or explain it to the media or the journalist or even you know your staff or the people that you're hiring. Um, you know, If you, on a menu, said that our burger is $35 because all of our employees work full time, have health benefits, and paid vacation, um, and that's what it costs, people would say, oh, OK, I get it. And maybe those types of things will be the new things that we read about restaurants and that we see on menus Uh, instead of, you know, learning the name of the person who grew, you know, the beautiful heirloom vegetables, which is also extremely important and was an indicator to customers how thoughtful the restaurant was and why the price points are what they are. Now maybe we have a different mile marker or value point for how we are going to decide what we want to pay for and what we don't want to pay for. Uh, I was watching an interview on Instagram, uh, New York Times, with the designer Tom Ford, and he was, you know, in his empty atelier in Los Angeles. And the interviewer, who is Vanessa Friedman, the fashion editor of the Times, she talked about many of the, you know, prejudices, business issues, racism, racism, you know, all, you know, all the sins of the fashion industry, environmentalism, fast fashion, all of those things, how it's just, um, you know, a lot of change. And, you know, similar to the restaurant industry, the fashion industry has been talking about things they need to change. Designers want fewer shows, they want to do two shows a year, not 16, they want to, you know, decrease the footprint and do all these things. And she asked him, do you think that will happen when the world comes back? And he says, you know, I would love for it to happen. And we're trying to make these things happen. But at the end of the day, I don't think it is going to happen because we've trained the consumer to want something specific. They're going to want something new every month or every two months. And so we will have to, you know, once that machine turns back on, we'll have to feed that machine. And Essence is what he was saying. So I thought it was um, a very honest response from him and maybe not a very hopeful one, but I think it's still early enough in our collective recovery. I'm not quite sure where we are. It's hard to know on the upswing. But I do feel like we're on the upswing. You know, when we come, whenever we get to come outdoors and we get to go back to our restaurants and see our people's faces and, and be close to them and squeeze into a place and, you know, go to sporting events in the theater... You know, don't forget about the time and don't forget about the things that were meaningful. And don't go back to just wanting the cheapest, freest thing that you can get, because the cheapest, freest thing you can get nearly broke everything. So hopefully businesses will have the um, will have the courage and the wherewithal to make some of those changes, which will be hard. Um, hopefully the government will support them in making those changes, both in terms of policy and dollars. And hopefully the consumer will understand um, that to have better things, everybody has to make a contribution. And sometimes that's financial and sometimes that's time. And, and if you want it to be better, you everybody has to sort of make that effort. So I'm hopeful. And I do hope that a lot of the things that people have talked about Um, actually become realities and they do articulate them when they reopen restaurants and we go back and, and all those things happen. And, you know, with, um, you know, women like you leading organizations who are trying to make these changes at the grassroots level or at the early stages with students who will become, you know, the chefs and the business owners of tomorrow. I mean, I think we can all be, um, be hopeful, you know, that at least we're aware and somebody's doing something. (laughs) So I want to thank uh, T Sharma and Eliza Lower for joining me today on this uh, Look Back episode for the year of the pandemic. Ladies, thank you for coming. Thank you for having us.
2: Thanks for having us.
1: And I want to thank the staff at Heritage Radio Network. I want to thank Matt for continuing to do an amazing job and keeping us all going. Um, It has been a really good anchor in my life and hopefully a little bit of an anchor in our listeners' lives as well. If you are a listener and you want to help anchor us and make us have a bright future, go to heritageradionetwork.org, click the beating heart. And, you know, if you can, maybe throw us what you would have spent on that coffee today. It'll help us keep the lights on, make more radio and stay connected, and record our stories of these times, which we will want to have in years to come. I'm Jennifer Liuzzi, and this is Tech Bytes. Tech Bytes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network